Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode in my podcast series, Did It Anyway. We've had a little gap since our last uh, podcast that we did, but I'm really excited to be back on board and ready to go uh, with a new a new episode today and one that I'm, I'm really excited about. I say that I'm excited about every episode that I do, um, but this one's extremely impactful. It has been impactful for me as we've spoken about it before we've got started today. And so I'm really excited um, for you guys to be able to hear um, the story of this amazing lady um, that we're going to speak to today. So my special guest on my podcast today is Kay Neuenhausen. She is my mother-in-law, would you believe? Um, and But I'm really excited to have her on, on, uh, on my podcast today. Now, Kay is calling from uh, Adelaide, where she obviously lives now, um, and I'm going to get her to introduce herself just to get started, um, but she's got an amazing story that she's going to share with us today. So um, I'll get you to kick it off, Kay, and just uh, maybe introduce yourself a little bit to everyone that's listening. Oh, good morning. Hello. And yes, I am Baron's mother-in-law. How about that? We have a wonderful relationship. I want you all to know that he's a wonderful man and we love him dearly. Uh, I am 76 years old, coming up 77 in June. Uh, I have seven children, 22 grandchildren. The joy of our lives are our grandchildren and especially our children and their, their wonderful spouses. I was born in a place called Port Lincoln in South Australia, the most beautiful little seaside village you could possibly hope to, to see. Had a wonderful life growing up there. I was born in 1942, which you would have worked out. They were good years. Although I was born during the war, uh, we certainly found that as the war ended, uh, peace came. Uh, there were wonderful, happy times in the 40s and the 50s. Everyone was happy. People had work. Uh, families seem to just want to stay together. Uh, having lived at this beachside place, we had lots of things to do with our cousins and aunties and uncles. We would have beach parties and catch cockles and periwinkles and my dad would build a big bonfire on the beach and we'd cook them in, in the little buckets and things hanging over the fire. Wonderful, happy times. Excellent. Started. You mentioned you mentioned that your dad... Um built a bonfire and so I want you to tell me a little bit about your dad we're going to spend some time talking about your dad today why don't you tell me some of the things you remember in your childhood with your dad okay my dad was a very hard worker he and mum had moved in from the farm we sat on air peninsula uh, farming people and had bought a, a business a mixed business as they called them back then where you bought everything like a little supermarket and uh, they built up a wonderful business there However, before that, he used to work for the railways and would travel around Air Peninsula with the South Australian Railways and then worked for a big store, like a mitre 10, but when I say big, it was big for Port Lincoln, a place called Gettys. And I still have pictures of him standing in his Gettys outfit in the little car he used to drive around. Uh, a very hardworking man. My mother said he was a wonderful man and it's... Um, it was only after they came in from the country into that little town of Port Lincoln that uh, I guess maybe the socialising or the social life that he started to have a bit of an issue with drinking and and that uh, was the start of many years of a challenge that he had. Uh, but my mother apparently, as I look back on it now, was a wonderful companion to him and stood by him. One of the fun things he did for us was he built a shack at another little beach place about uh, 15 minutes from Lincoln, a place called Tulka. Now, this shack was just made out of galvanized iron, painted red, just one big room, and we would go down there and uh, have more beach parties and have a wonderful time at Tulka. 
So um, hard-working man, very tall man, very handsome-looking man. Yes, so that's a little bit about my dad to start off with. Yeah, awesome. And you mentioned you mentioned there that um, obviously there's some really good times, but there's a bit, some challenging times as well from a, um, a drinking perspective. You mentioned that that was a big challenge for your dad. Was that a big part of your childhood? Did, did that start early on? Oh, no, I didn't. I wasn't aware of it back then. Had right. no idea. As I, I look back at it now and things that my mother had told me and as I grew up. and um, We moved to uh, Adelaide when I was about eight where my family and my parents also had more mixed businesses. They were called back then, different shops. And that's when it became more of an issue for him, which was a real challenge for both of them, obviously. That, it's interesting that you didn't know too much about it then, but obviously not you realise um, the challenge that, that you had. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, um, what happened on the Thursday, the 15th of January, 1959. And I'm going to ask if I could, you were 16 years old at the time. And I want you to talk us through, um, I guess what happened that day. I guess we know you've mentioned in regards to your dad and his struggles with, with, um, with alcohol or his drinking. Um, and that probably led up to this series of events that happened um, on that day. Could you talk us through what happened, Kate? Shall do. I'll just set the scene. I worked in a government office in the social services department and um, started there when I was 15. My brother also worked in the same office, so we would often travel together to go to and from work. But this particular day, as usual, my girlfriends and I had gone out for lunch there were lots of little milk bars in Rundle Mall. It was Rundle Street, it was back then in the city of Adelaide. And we happened to, goodness knows why, we were talking about if one of our parents had died. And I remember saying, I don't know what I would do if either of my parents had died or did die. And that night at 6.30, my father was dead. Um, to set the scene as to what happened, we had dinner. My parents had a big boarding house. Mother worked very hard at that to provide for our family. There were about six or seven guys that lived there. And we'd, at that time, had a, a young brother and sister come and live with us. He was about 18 and she would have been my age, about 16. I'm not quite sure why they were living with us. I think maybe their parents were moving or there was difficulty in those families. But the brother had had an issue with my dad. Apparently, my dad had been looking for a bottle of wine and this young man became involved in that search and was angry with my dad. So came inside and started to yell at him a little bit and, and started to pick up the fists and come on, let's have a fight. And my dad had been drinking and so he wasn't very stable on his feet and stood up and started to hit back and it all happened so quickly. But this young man, through his punching of my dad, obviously hit him in the chest and ruptured his spleen and lung collapse and it was through the ruptured spleen and my dad fell to the floor and never regained consciousness. And then mother had come in after dad had fallen and um, I, for some reason I remember saying, oh, he's, he's going to be dead. He, he's dying. He's dead. And mum said, let's rub some wine or whiskey or vinegar into his hands. I can't quite remember thinking that might revive him. And, and then we managed to drag him up. My dad was very tall. We dragged him up the hallway to put him up on his bed. I don't know how we ever got up on his bed because he was so big. But we did. And one of the old men that lived with us 
come inside to hear and see what was going on and called our doctor. Now, back then, there wasn't phones like we have now. This is one where you just pick up the receiver and then it had a circle where you dialed the numbers from that. And I remember watching this dear old man dial that number, most probably thinking what on earth has happened to this man, to my dad, and called our doctor who came down and uh, pronounced him dead. Now, that was, I think about it now, just numbing. Uh, just that sort of feeling that you just feel so numb. And naturally, after the doctor pronounced him dead, we had to wait a little while before his body was taken away. Yeah. And I remember that my sister came up. We called her and um, she came up. She'd only been married for a few years and had two little children. She's an amazing woman, very, very strong. She would have been about, if I was 16, she would have been 22 at the time. And uh, my brother wasn't with us. He was in Melbourne. He was in the Navy, and so we had to contact him for him to come back. But I remember going uh, to bed that night. Mum and my sister and I slept in my parents' bed, and I remember saying to my mother, how do you go to sleep? And she said, you just go to sleep. You close your eyes and you go to sleep. How do you wake up in the morning? And she said, we'll wake up in the morning. And we did. We went to sleep. We woke up in the morning. But my dear brother, he had to drive home on his own and he stopped at Neil halfway. And when he woke up and he slept in the car for a little while as a break, when he woke up, he didn't know which direction was to go home to Adelaide. He was so confused. He took off the wrong way, heading back to Melbourne. Oh, wow. Bless but then he finally turned up that next morning and most distressed, as you can well imagine, because his commanding officer had just told him yeah, that his dad passed away and he needed to go home and so on. I remember him walking in the door saying, what happened? What happened? What happened? You know, just so distressed. Bless his heart. He was 20 at the time. And so it was a very emotional time, as you can imagine, for all of us. Yeah. And I remember the papers that day, the headlines of the paper was that Wayville landlord murders. And it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't an intentional murder at all. And it just goes to show how things can be twisted in the paper. But that's the headlines. And I'm, as I've thought about that over the years, I wonder how did my mother cope with that headline, Wayville landlord murdered. Yeah, bless her heart. So that was the setting for that night, that morning. I, I uh, thought it was interesting you mentioned that you dragged your dad, um, obviously, along the floor and put him on his bed. I, I, I couldn't even imagine um, that experience. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, it was, uh, he was he's very tall. My dad was about 6'1", six, 6'2". Six, so there would be my mother and I and this young man and his sister and this uh, other old man that um, helped us when he at the phone when he rang the doctor. Mm. Yeah. I, I can remember it quite well. Mm. Can you talk me through um, how you dealt with the next couple of days? I mean, when you mentioned what your mum said um, when you're in the bed and you just you close your eyes and you go to sleep and you wake up and that sort of attitude, I guess, has, has been your, I guess, from looking on the outside, the way you've dealt with your whole life in the sense that just keep on going, you just keep moving, you just keep moving forward. How did you cope in the... the days following your dad's passing? Well, because of the uh, way my dad died, because of the incident that occurred with his uh, death, there had to be an autopsy. 
and it um that took several days we had to wake i think it was a week before we had the body before we could have the funeral and those days were interesting and challenging the dear old sisters from our church bless their hearts they must have been in their 80s and 90s made up this uh, some sort of mixture that was supposed to calm your nerves and it tasted terrible <laughs> but here they are saying no, no drink this is what will calm your nerves and another one would come in and say, oh, you need to start smoking. Smoking will calm your nerves and all these different things that people suggested, you know, to do. But, yeah, waiting waiting for the uh, autopsy. And it's interesting, my dad had had TB a few years before and had been in hospital for six months with that. And when they did the autopsy, they discovered that the TB had returned and his body was a little bit of a mess with the lungs inside. So bless his heart. He most likely didn't have long to live as it was because of that other disease. But no, people were so kind and just in and out, in and out of our door, uh, just shedding light and love and trying to comfort us. Yes. And as the, as the doctor, was, go ahead. No, it was very, very hot weather. And my brother and I bought my mother a fan. Can you imagine that? Hot weather and a fan. Back then we had no air conditioning, didn't even have a fan, but we went and bought her a fan. I remember that. How about that? <laughs> Would have made yeah. it, no doubt. Um, I guess so. The... I can't remember her crying. I can't remember my mother crying. I think over the years she'd carried such a big load and bless her heart, she just, um, maybe she cried silently in her bed or in the bathroom or something, but she was just one of those steady, steady um, people, yes. We discussed earlier that you said that back in, in those times, people were very much... You, you pull your socks up and you just keep going. And is that sort of what you felt from your mum as you mentioned that there as well? Always, always. Now, that generation were amazing. They'd been through the war. They had been through the Depression. They had been through hard times on the land. And that generation, they were a strong generation. And I take my hat off to them. I admire them greatly. You didn't complain about things. You just got on with life and you did it. So with that and in mind... With that in mind, who, do you, who would you look to as sort of one of your biggest supports throughout that, that period of time? I guess it would have to be my sister. Um, she's very much like mother in that respect, but, um, yes, very compassionate, very, very loving, very caring. And I guess me being the baby of the family, um, yes, she was always strong, very much like my mum, always strong. Yeah. And I appreciated that all my life with her. She's the one I would turn to if I needed any advice or help or whatever, no matter what. My sister was always there for me. So initial stages, you've got all these people around helping or, or at least checking in on how you were doing. Um, as the weeks turned into, I guess, months, how did you personally deal with this um, on your own? What were the thoughts that you had and how did you work through it? Well, it's interesting because there was a court case uh, regarding the, the killing, which it had to be, and the young man was charged with manslaughter. And I remember one day when I had to give evidence in court, um, I obviously, I can't remember the incident in the court, but I obviously had broken down because that night on the, had the front page of the newspaper was young girl breaks down in court. And I happened to be going home on the tram. Now, back in those days, we had those little hooks that you hang on to when you're standing up on the tram. Yep. And the man next to me was reading the paper. I don't know how he could read it and stand up, but they were very clever back then. And I saw the headlines of the paper, and I remember thinking, now that's me they're talking about. I knew that was me. And I thought, 
Now, that man doesn't know that I am that young girl standing alongside of him. I'm that young girl who broke down in court. And I learned way back then a very, very good message, a very good lesson that you never know who is standing alongside of you or sitting alongside of you or walking with you or near you in a shopping centre, in a car park, in a school, in any situation. You don't know what those people are going through. And I remember thinking, I always want to remember that moment because I don't want to ever forget how I felt reading about that about me because other people too will have sad experiences and hard things in their life. And I think that's been a, a wonderful influence for me. That's something that's really good that came out of what I had to experience was that you just never know what people are going through and just to show love, just to fill the world with love no matter what. You mentioned there was a song or something that you try to live by. Um, well, I'm not sure. Was it a movie, right. a movie show, a movie? That's right. The song from Mr. Chips called Fill the World with Love About Every Day. You try to be brave and strong and true. And that's been my guideline. Have I tried to be brave and strong and true? And every day, I can't say I've done that every day. I'm sure there's many, many days I fail, but it's certainly been a guiding light for me. Have I been brave and strong and true? And have I tried to fill the world with love that particular day? Yeah. I love what now, you I'm said. a hungry person. People who know me. In fact, I have a friend, when she first met me years ago, she thought, oh, no, she's too much. She's <laughs> too over the top for me. <laughs> but we took time over the years to build a friendship, and we have a wonderful friendship. And I'm just one of those people, I guess people might say, oh, you're over the top or you're not sincere or whatever. That's just how I want to live my life. It's to fill the world with love. And because of what I experienced, um, I just don't want people to be sad. And I know there's a lot of sadness. And if I can brighten somebody's life or somebody's day by a hug or a smile or whatever. The other day I, was in, I just had to have a blood test, a normal blood test. And the lady that was doing the test had been assigned to work at this particular medical center. And it was the first day she'd been there. Since her daughter died, her 23-year-old daughter died four years previously, mm. it happened that that young lady had come to that medical center to see a doctor because she wasn't well, and the doctor said, oh, you're just suffering from anxiety. Go home, take these tablets, and you'll be right. And I think six hours later, she was dead. Now, that lady wasn't blaming that doctor, but she was wondering how she would cope walking into that medical center knowing that that's where the, her daughter had been because she hadn't been back there since that time. Uh -huh. And I looked at her and we just sat in that little medical room and tears were running down her face and I was a little bit weepy and I said, can I give you a hug? <laughs> and this is a late I didn't know, but I gave her a hug and hopefully somehow that helped her get through that day because that doctor that saw her daughter previously was on duty that day and she didn't know how she was going to cope with that. So that, that's, how, that's how I desire to, to share my life and my love with other people. My my days don't always go well, but I figure, hey, if I can brighten someone else's day, it makes my day better. And I, I think that all comes back to that moment on the tram is really significant for me. It comes back to that moment of understanding that other people are going through significant challenges that we absolutely have no idea about, particularly some of those people that we view as those strong and tough people that we look at. We don't know the challenges that they deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. That You know, we could have no, been... Don't. We could have been that guy on the tram reading the paper about somebody else who's standing right next to us as well, and we don't know that. And so you, you've certainly, I, I've, I've seen it, that that's the way you've tried to live your life. 
Um, I, I talk to my wife, Davina, all the time, um, obviously, but we've spoken about you a fair bit in leading up to this podcast. And she mentioned some of the things that you've tried to do um, or that you've done in your life since then. And most people don't think their life is extraordinary or they've done amazing things in their life, but um, you've done some incredible things um, throughout your life. And it seems as though every single thing is around service. And I think it all comes back to that tram moment where you're thinking about the needs of somebody else, not understanding or not whether they've gone through a a challenging moment or a really tough time. Um, And I mean, you can elaborate on this, but I know that you've spent years and years doing things like meals on wheels and helping out people in the community with a variety of different um, things and different charities and um, all in an attempt to give and help. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Oh, look, I'd love to. You know, we have seven kids and we've always, my husband and I have always wanted to be involved in the schools that our children attended. And where we lived, it was fortunate that they were little schools in like a country area in Western Sydney and uh, loved being involved with the schools there in that way. Uh, Also in that particular area, I was very involved with the Red Cross. And I don't know if you remember because you're much younger than me, but back in, I think it was 1986, there was what we call the Chernobyl disaster, where a nuclear explosion in Russia. And many people died and a lot of kids were injured. And uh, my group and I and the Red Cross and some of my friends from my church, we uh, were able to assist bring, I think it was two plane loads of children out from there to spend some time in Australia. And there was a camp up in the Blue Mountains that we were able to use a campsite and these beautiful children came. We didn't speak Russian, they didn't speak English, but we danced together, we laughed together, we provided meals for them, clothes for them, and happy times together. And that was a wonderful experience to be involved with that. My kids were even involved with that. They might not remember, but coming up and helping with the food or activities we were doing with the children, that was wonderful because those kids had lost so much. Some of them had lost their families and they were injured. I don't know if you remember the Kosovo uh, War. the government bought, I don't know how many plane loads of Kosovo refugees out to Sydney. One of my daughters and I were involved with that and uh, setting up where we had the clothing sorted for them because all they had was what they wore, nothing else. And so working with the Red Cross side by side with many other people, we were able to help and sustain and care for and love those people from Kosovo. Let me tell you, We had been out there a couple of days setting up this um, old army site for these Kosovo refugees and the time came, we'd heard the planes had landed and the buses were coming and we were all just waiting and those buses pulled into that army camp and those people were waving and weeping at us and we started to wave and weep back. That's humanity. That's love. That's... That was an amazing experience. They had been through murder and rape and war and shocked, shell-shocked, and yet here they were smiling and waving at us and goodness knows what was going on through their mind. Once again, we couldn't speak the language, but you didn't have to speak the language to feel what we felt together. Isn't it interesting? In those days with those people were amazing. 
Sometimes we yeah, get sorry. No, no, you're good. You're good. Sometimes we get <laughs> worried about whether our Wi-Fi works. <laughs> you know, and we we lose focus sometimes on what's important. I love what you've spoken about today because it helps us remember what is really important. And that that moment that you saw those refugees and started to appreciate from a human perspective what they have dealt with that would have been so oh, significant yes. and so horrendous and that you it can just so provide happy. a bit of love. Um, that's, that's what life's about, about helping other people. That's what I learned as a, that's what I learned as a 16 year old that uh, you never know what people are going through and just fill that world with love. And I'm so grateful. I've had many experiences. There's just a couple, but some of them, yeah, it's just um, amazing. Grateful. I've had those experiences. Davina mentioned that you'd frequently bring home people all the time, random strays, oh. I guess, for dinner or for... We, <laughs> I used to... I worked in a jeweller's shop uh, in, a play, in a Parramatta in Sydney and uh, got to know Parramatta. I don't know much about Parramatta, but it's a place where you get all types of people. And I, yes, I used to find strangers and I loved that. We would bring them home and share our a table with them and Christmas with them. And that was wonderful, especially for the children to see, I think also. And it, uh, it touched our lives and enriched our lives, especially to bring them home. And likewise with their, their children's teachers, we loved inviting them to our home to have them come and meet with us and to feel the spirit in our home because we wanted people to feel the love that we had. And yeah, that, that was life. And somehow the budget managed to go around to feed extras, but I loved bringing strangers home as I did. I loved finding people and, yeah, and bringing them home. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, if we, if we go back a little bit, do you have moments now where you think about your father's death and does it bother you now? Are you more at peace with it? How, how does that sit with you at the moment? Look, I, I do have flashbacks and it's, uh, I will admit that. And, um, they can be very tender, and and that's okay. I don't mind when they come uh, having flashbacks because I think I've grown to love my father more over the past what seventy years, sixty odd years than I have as a growing up teenager. Because life was different back then. We didn't talk much. You would just sit at the table and and eat. And, and because of his um, alcoholism, there wasn't much conversation. But no. It, uh, the flashbacks are good because it brings me to remember what I learnt from that. And it, um, my husband's been a great support with that. I can say, look, I'm having a flashback or something. I might have a little weep, but I'm grateful for that. I remember um, just thinking about the actual time of the death and the burial and that, that we never had much conversation that I said, but I remember must have asked my mother, what should I wear to the funeral? And she said, wear the dress that your dad likes, you know, my his favorite dress. And so I wore that favorite dress to the funeral. And I've got a picture of that. And I think that's, that's lovely. I remember that he obviously might've expressed to her that he liked the way that dress looked on me or my brother-in-law on the particular day of the funeral must have been assigned to stand next to me. I guess he's a 16 year old wondering how she's going to cope at the funeral at the graveside. And I have a wonderful relationship with my brother-in-law. He's 90 wow. and I'm 77. <laughs> and way back then is when that, uh, that love and that um, commitment and that appreciation for him grew as I think back on that. But no, look, as horrible as it was, I learned much from that and I'm grateful for what I learned. And that, um, yes, I always remember my mother said that my father was a wonderful man. It was just a drink that changed him. 
So I, I have a wonderful man, father. Yeah. I often think about that that moment in your life at sixteen, probably one of the most impressionable ages that you could be um, in your life, and and you probably had a, a choice to make at that point in time of which way do you go with this? How do you deal with this? And could it become quite bitter, quite angry, which would have all been appropriate emotions for what you just experienced. Um, being the only person in the room, as you mentioned, when you saw this all happen, it wasn't like you came in afterwards, you watched it happen. So that could have, that could have sent your life in a really horrible place, I would have thought. But um, your ability to, to cope with that and then be able to almost a pay it forward situation where you look for other ways throughout your whole life. You've looked for other ways just to, to lift people around you, not understanding the challenges that they might be going through, but to appreciate that they could be going through um, really hard challenges. And I think from my perspective, your ability to be able to deal with something, control your response to a situation that you had no control over is quite remarkable from my perspective. Um, and you also didn't allow that experience to define you. And I think sometimes in life we experiences happen and we allow them to dictate. We allow that experience to be a crutch for decisions that we make that are poor afterwards. And you certainly haven't allowed yourself to do that. You know, that was a horrendous experience. And people listening to this podcast may have had similar or not similar, quite different, but still bad, really challenging experiences. And I think this is a good example of, how to deal with an experience like that and how to think differently because of the experience that you had. And, and that, that, uh, that for me says a lot about your character and what you're about. And so I, I, for me, I appreciate the example um, of how to, you know, how to act after such a significant event happens. Well, thank you for that. It has been very significant in my life and, uh, as I mentioned before, the, the I guess I don't want to say the horror of it, although it was at the time, but it, um, I'm, I'm grateful for what I've learned from it. And it, um, yes, I just have to have the courage to, to move on. And I, and I desire that as a young girl. And I'm just so grateful for that. I obviously had that strength that comes from that generation from before. I can't always see it because I think they were amazing. But I think that's been passed on from one generation to another. Yeah. And I'm grateful for Mm. And I'm constantly amazed at the strength of people in that generation. I look at my parents, I look at my grandparents and live through some know, really challenging mm. things, you know, and I am constantly amazed at that. And, but, Kay, I, I just, I, I'm, the, sometimes the more you learn about somebody's life, the more respect you have for them. And today has been that experience for me. Um, because I just look at, at what you've experienced and I, I don't know that I could have dealt with it the way that you have. Um, we all have our own challenges, but that is a really significant one. I could not imagine for a second watching my father be killed and then dragging um, dragging him up the corridor, um, putting him on the bed and, and having that experience. Um, and I think you're remarkable in the way that you've been able to deal with it. I have one more question, if that's okay. Please. Yeah, please. How have you been able to understand that the man that, and you spoke pretty well in regards to the man that, that actually punched your dad. But how have you been able to, um, or how do you feel about that man? And, and what, how have you been able to deal with that element of it? Because it wasn't that you just, your dad passed away and you're upset about that. There was somebody that caused that to happen. Um, and I'm interested to know how you've been able to, to cope with that. Yes, if I might just set the scene here. My brother had uh, been in the Navy and a few years after 
my, my our father had passed away. My brother was in hospital for some brief um, surgery, and there happened to be a male nurse that came up to his bed and saw the name and saw that it was my brother. And my brother looked at the man and knew it was who it was. It was the young man who killed our father. And the nurse, the young man, just walked away and couldn't approach my brother. Uh, he never came back into that ward. And I asked my brother, he told me this recently, I hadn't known about it till recently, and he asked, um, I asked him how he felt about it, and he he said he didn't have much to, feeling toward him at all. He was just sorry for him that also that he couldn't come and approach him, but uh, that he had to walk away from him. And I guess the young man that killed my, our father all those years ago, he had to carry that load all his life. He um, wasn't sentenced for prison. He was convicted of manslaughter, but because of his age, he was given, um, I can't remember what you would have called it back then, but he didn't have to go to jail. There were times over the years that I, I don't know if I was angry for him or sad for him, but I wondered how he got on with his life, how he could face life. He didn't plan to kill my dad. It was just something that happened, which was terrible. And as I said, he has had to live with that. But I feel for him and for his sister, for the experience that they both had to share together, for the pain they caused our family. But, um, yeah, I hope that he's been able to get on with his life. I have uh, no malice towards him at all. I don't believe I ever have, whether I call it lack of forgiveness or forgiveness. I really don't know how I felt back then, except for the fact that I, uh, at this stage of my life, and over the last many, many years, I've had no bad feeling towards him. I've just hoped that he's been able to move on and and uh, have life and experiences and feel love and, and joy that we've been able to do. He might have taken my dad by that, but he certainly didn't take away the joy of our family. Yeah. Nothing can take away from the joy of a family, no matter what people do to you. Wow. That's, that's very humbling. <laughs> Amazing outlook, and I appreciate you sharing that. Um, it does also help me to realise the damage that can be done, though, from a punch, I guess. And, and you, sometimes you don't think about that. It was an own, you know, to somebody's chest as well. And so it makes me realise um, the impact that that can have on a family. Even, obviously, that wasn't what he was trying to do, as you mentioned, but we need to be aware of that stuff, obviously, as well. Um, but, Kay, I, I just want to say a huge thank you for being so raw and so open and sharing your story. And, and for those that are listening... Obviously, there'll be parts that you've taken out of this this story that will be helpful for your life, I have no doubt. For me, it is absolutely think of the other person and what the challenges that, that they might be dealing with. The next time somebody, you know, cuts you off in traffic, instead of maybe yelling at them, could we think differently about that situation and where are they rushing to, what's going on in their life? We don't know. We don't know the challenges that people face in their, in their lives, but the best we could do is to care for them and to love them. And and that would help if everybody felt in that way and thought in that way. And we all have our moments, but if we all try and think in that way, I think there'd be a better place around us. That's for sure. Did you have any last thoughts that you wanted to mention, Kay, before we finish? Oh, no, I haven't, except for I'm so grateful for the experiences that I've had in my life that have uh, helped to shape me and um, help to every day, as I said, I try to, uh, Remember the words of that, uh, the filled the, the love with love and have I been brave and strong and true. 
And uh, yeah, if anyone's listening, just strive to be brave and strong and true because it really works. It can work in your life. You can be brave and strong and true no matter what. Yeah, no matter what. I think that's a good way to finish. No matter what challenges everyone's going through, we can all be brave and strong and true. And I implore and encourage everybody to be brave. Um, And if you have to borrow that bravery from somebody else next to you and talk to them about the challenge you're dealing with, then do that. Uh, But we can all get through the challenges that we're faced with. And I think, Kay, you've provided a really good example of that today. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And for your honesty and your openness. So I thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. All right. And as I always say, when I finish my podcast, if you've got somebody who has a a remarkable story, um, someone who has overcome adversity um, and truly did it anyway, as I like to call my podcast, um, please let me know. And I'd love to talk to them about their experiences and share their experiences, I guess, with with other people, uh, because we learn so much when we understand other people are going through really challenging experiences and get little tips on how they were able to get through and be positive out the backside. So jump on my, on my channel, subscribe. I'd love to have more of you listening to these amazing stories. Have a fantastic day and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.